wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth to you.org that's truth number two letter you.org and joining me this hour is one of the world's foremost authorities on missionaries cults and the jewish community he is the director of education and counseling for jews for judaism in canada the website is jewsforjudaism.ca jewsforjudaism.ca welcome back to the program rabbi michael skovak how you doing there john oh, good to be here wonderful to have you back my friend we are investigating the supposed 365 prophecies of jesus in the tanakh these are uh, apparently prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus fulfilled. Now, I have to say, I've been a little bit disappointed so far with this list. We've gone, what have we done? We've done Genesis and Exodus. We're picking up now in Leviticus, and I'm really hoping that it's going to get a little meatier. I hope we're going to have something that we can chew on, because so far, they, you know, unfortunately, it seems to be grasping at straws. We don't have much substance. Uh, I think it may be getting better, but not in the five books of Moses. I think. Uh, <laughs> I think if we've somehow- got to find something. Surely, if the, there's got to be something in the Torah that we can really sink our teeth into. <laughs> this is what I'm hoping for, particularly in Leviticus. I mean, we we, we get some uh, we we get a little in depth here. Unfortunately, the first one, number thirty on the list, is not a good example, and that's where we begin. This is Levit- Leviticus chapter fourteen, verse eleven. And it talks about the priest uh, and, and the, the ritual that is required in order to cleanse a person of leprosy. And it says here in the list of 365 prophecies of Jesus fulfilled, uh, the leper cleansed sign to the priesthood. Now, I, it, it cites Luke chapter 5, verse 12 to 14. And this is what, this is what it, it talks about. Uh, it, it, it claims that Jesus healed a man with leprosy. And then Jesus says to him, go and show yourself to the priests and offer what Moses prescribed for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Well, you know, I, you know it's fair enough. Then it, then the, the other reference that uh, this list claims is Acts chapter 6, verse 7, which says that uh, a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. And that's the faith in Jesus. I don't, I don't see how that is in any way relevant to Leviticus chapter 14. Do you see a better link here? Is there some... I I think that these are very tenuous connections, obviously. You know, again, uh, we've seen this pattern repeating itself over and over again in the 30 passages we've done already, that when any person would read Leviticus chapter 14, they would not see a chapter that is exploring the identity and concept of the Messiah. It's simply a passage which is giving us the procedure, biblically, for how someone who became a mitzorah. Now, it's unfortunately translated often as lepra or leprosy. It's not really what the person had, but it was a special spiritual biblical uh, form of impurity. And mm-hmm. this chapter is, is really giving us the procedure um, for how the uh, priests would be part of the process to help this person go through a purification. And in this particular passage, it says that the priest who purifies this person will place the person being purified along with them, and the the word them here refers back to the previous verse, where it says that part of the process involved three animals and meal offerings and oil, Mm -hmm. so that the the priest here is going to place this person who has been impure along with the animals and the meal offerings and the oil, before God at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and then they proceed with the 
process of purification. But the important piece here is simply that this is not discussing the identity of the Messiah. And, no, not at all. Right. So, again, this has been, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the modus operandi so far in that the, the Christian missionary uh, case here is being built on passages that are being ripped out of context because when you simply go back to the original passage and study it, even just read it uh, casually, it has nothing to do with the, uh, with the concept of the Messiah. Most of them are not even prophetic predictions. And again, even mm. if it were, it, it, there's no indication, at least from reading the passages, that uh, Jesus necessarily fulfilled them. Now, I think we're seeing this. Yeah, you know, we're seeing it over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one thing that we're seeing in this uh, process we're going through is the nature of um, you know these alleged proof texts that they have this pattern of being built on again passages that if you simply look them up, get your Bible, uh, you know, unless for some reason uh, you are convinced at the outset that Jesus was the Messiah and therefore you have to find things that sound like Jesus, mm. um, you know, these will have nothing to do with, the, with prophecies, nothing to do with predicting what's going to happen in the future, nothing mm. to do with the topic of Messiah. And it would be helpful, we haven't really mentioned this yet, maybe some of the listeners that are scratching their head, to, to maybe take a look at some of the passages in the Bible that really are uh, messianic prophecies, just to get a, a sense of the qualitative difference. So, for example, if you were to read uh, in the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah, I think it's verses 5 and 6, and in the 33rd chapter of Jeremiah, I think it's 14 to 16, and uh, the last verses in the 34th chapter of Ezekiel, and the last dozen or so verses in the 37th chapter of Ezekiel. I mean, there are a, a, about a dozen very, very clear um, passages in the Bible which are certainly referring to the Messiah, and they're clear to the extent that no one disagrees, meaning that all Jewish scholars and readers of the Bible and all Christian scholars and readers of the Bible agree that there are uh, about ten or so passages that are just overtly and clearly speaking about the Messiah. And, you know, it's helpful if a person were to review those passages and just get a sense as to um, what really constitutes a clear messianic passage. One thing is that they're going to have some hook that tells you it's speaking about a character who was anointed. The word Messiah in the Bible means anointed, mm -hmm. and uh, priests were anointed, uh, prophets were sometimes anointed, but kings were the primary office that were anointed. And so when the Bible speaks about a person that's a king, you have uh, certainly a right and, uh, to assume that you can call this person an anointed one. And so mm -hmm. the, the typical uh, messianic prophecies in the Bible speak, first of all, about the future. They're, they're talking about a, an individual who will in, appear in the future who will be a king of the Jewish people. And then they go on to explain that, that he will obviously be a descendant of King David because all kings, we were promised that all kings mm -hmm. would descend from David. And yep. then the Bible basically paints a very unified picture that this particular future king will come. Uh, he will preside over the Jewish nation at a time when 
the Jews have been regathered to their homeland, mm. the 12 tribes have been reunited, we're living on our homeland, we've rebuilt the temple, uh, all the Jewish people are, are following the Torah, we're following God, uh, and there's peace that, that really uh, prospers across not just the land of Israel, but across the entire world. And mm -hmm. then that spreads to the nations, and the nations all turn to God. Uh, they acknowledge the Jewish people as his special representatives, and that's a picture that's painted literally in each of the ten or so true messianic prophecies in the Bible. But now we're trying to somehow untangle this uh, web of passages that really unfortunately have literally nothing to do with the topic of the Messiah, and the entire five books of Moses, we saw that the 49th chapter of Genesis could possibly be construed as a messianic prophecy, um, but we saw there was no reason to assume that it, it spoke about Jesus. And we'll see, with Jesus, yeah. Yeah, we'll see tonight that there's actually one more. So in the entire five books of Moses, although this list, I think, uh, claims there were 44 or 45 prophecies about the Messiah, really there are only two. And we'll get, right. to, we'll get to one of them. We'll get to the other one tonight. We'll see in a few minutes. Oh, my word. So, Leviticus 14.11 just doesn't help. No, I, I like to think, now that we're past that, I think that we're going to get into something that we can sink our teeth into, surely. Because here we are in Leviticus chapter 16, number 31 and 32 on the list. Leviticus 16, uh, verses 15 to 17, and Levit Leviticus 16, verses 27. This is talking about... Yom Kippur, right? This is talking about the, the, the scapegoat, the goat for Azel and the goat uh, that is uh, sacrificed for the uh, unintentional sins of the people against the tabernacle. Is that right? The first of these passages, which is 15 and 17 in Leviticus chapter 16, is not about the scapegoat. It's about, there were various sacrifices that were brought on the Day of Atonement, Yom HaKippurim. And uh, there, there was a, a section, a part of the service, which atoned primarily for the, uh, the, the contamination that was brought to the Holy Temple. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this, this uh, set of passages um, where the um, blood of the bull and the blood of the he-goat, they're sprinkled on the altar, um, is not the scapegoat. This is referring to... Uh, a part of the service that's prior to the scapegoat discussion of right. the scapegoat, um, but this is the one that died. These are the ones that these exactly. are the, the these are the ones that died. Now, what you're telling me because what what it claims on this list number thirty one uh, Leviticus sixteen uh, verses fifteen to seventeen it says prefigures Christ's once and for all death. Now it cites Hebrews chapter nine verses seven to fourteen that uh, does sort of allude back to, to here, but it's confusing because the uh, the sacrifices that are made here, the animals that that actually shed their blood here, are for a very specific purpose, right? It is for the unintentional sins committed against the tabernacle. Is that correct? Yes, and the other thing is is that the the claim here is that somehow this passage uh, would teach us about the fact that uh, Messiah would somehow. Um, be a sacrifice once and for all. Now, the important part about this is that when a person would read Leviticus, there's no connection here to the Messiah, meaning that it, it would have been very simple. I mean, God is simply uh, not a poor writer. I mean, God could have made mm. the connection to the uh, idea that the Messiah dies, you know, once or for all for our sins, 
He could have he said, could "Listen, have... we're going to do this. We're going to do this properly one day, and it's <laughs> yeah. going to be like this." But right now, you know, I don't have time to do that. We're gonna, just going to substitute it with goats and or bulls. We're going to do it like this. But one day we'll do it properly. I'll tell you about it later. Yeah, he could have snuck that in. God could have. He could have. <laughs> would have been helpful. Yes. So, so if all we have is the text, which I, I think that's uh, what we're basing our discussions on, that the text doesn't uh, indicate, even indirectly, that this. Um, service that was done every year on Yom HaKippurim on the Day of Atonement, there's nothing in the text about the fact that it prefigures and it's connected to the death of the Messiah. It's also interesting that um, we know that this service was done not just once, meaning that it would have been more appropriate if there was one Yom HaKippurim, one Day of Atonement in the history of the Jewish people, let's say when they came out of Egypt, they would mm-hmm. offer a sacrifice and that would be it for all of time that would be the last Yom HaKippurim because that would be the once offered sacrifice. But this sacrifice, we're told, was offered every single year. It wasn't a once uh, for all. So there's a very poor connection between this sacrifice, which was brought every single year, and the concept that, no, there's going to be a sacrifice which is once and for all. Um, so the, the promise we're going to have here, number one, um, this is not a prophecy, this, this passage in Leviticus. It's not a prediction. It's not predicting that something is going to happen in the future. Um, it's certainly not connected to the idea of the Messiah. It certainly doesn't indicate that there's going to be a sacrifice that's offered once and for all, um, mm. which is actually problematic because um, you know we have so many passages in the Bible which speak about the rebuilding of the third temple with a continuation of the sacrificial service, mm. even the sin offerings, meaning that the Christian uh, idea would seem to imply that once Jesus died uh, for the sins of the world, that's it, there are no more sacrifices. Mm. And so one would wonder, so why does the Bible say, no, there's going to be a third temple with sacrifices, including specifically sin offerings? As a matter of fact, what's interesting is that in the book of Ezekiel, when it speaks about Mm. the building of this third temple, so it says that the Messiah will actually offer sin offerings when this mm. third temple is dedicated. Um, so this idea of a once-and-for-all sacrifice is problematic. Um, there's also, I mean, again, this, I don't want to be beating a dead horse here, but even, <laughs> even if we, we took this incredible leap and were to, to assume that Leviticus, Leviticus here was somehow pointing to some final sacrifice, but again, there's no proof that it was Jesus that fulfilled it. I mean, that this is the, the double whammy that the missionary is expecting us to accept. That, that number one, it's somehow alluding to the Messiah. Um, and number two, that it somehow was fulfilled by Jesus. Now, they assert that Jesus fulfilled it. But again, there's no, nothing in the Bible that points specifically to him. Um, and as you, you know, if I if I understand this, I mean, let's let's just pretend for a second that that there was such evidence, and that we could say that he that he did do this, and it's all very legitimate. Let's just pretend for a second. Then is not this uh, uh, these verses, or at least this um, uh, proof text of, of uh, number thirty one on the list, then saying that Christ died once and for all for specifically for unintentional sins committed against the temple and nothing else. Well, I guess if you were going to be a literalist, <laughs> you were going to, you were going to. <laughs> but isn't that what it's saying? Because that's the that's the context of well, the of the passage here in Leviticus. If if on the other hand, 
we were going to say that uh, uh, Christ uh, took upon himself the sins of Israel. Uh, well, then we are looking at the scapegoat, aren't we? Right. I mean, that, that really the better analog would have been not these sacrifices um, in Leviticus, but the few verses later where it speaks about the scapegoat that we're told takes upon itself all the sins of the Jewish people. Um, hmm. Now, it's interesting, by the way, that the, the, the real analog that Christians would need would have been some sacrifice that took upon itself the, sa- the sins of the entire world, which the Bible never had. This is mm. limited to the Jewish people, but That's right. um, th- that would have been, at least in terms of, uh, for the Jewish people, the better model, the better analog, the scapegoat, which does take it, upon it itself. It would have been because it is, it's the sin bearer. So it says in uh, uh, verse 21 of Levit- Leviticus 16, which doesn't appear on this list, uh, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and their transgressions concerning all their sins. Put them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Now, do you know what? I have goats here on the farm. And believe me, you needed a suitable man to to lead a goat away. It's not an easy thing to do. It's a it's, it's a qualification that's not <laughs> that isn't possessed by by the average person. There has to be a suitable man to do that. And the goat shall bear upon itself their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and there he shall be released. Uh, it, it, release the goat in the wilderness. The goat lives, and that's problematic. You can't use that one. Exactly. That's that's really the rub that. You know, that if you have an animal that is killed and slaughtered, then you could say, well, you see here the sacrifice is suffering, it's dying. But the the scapegoat, the, at least biblically, we know that according to rabbinic tradition, the animal actually was thrown over a cliff and it was killed. But the Bible doesn't say that. The text of the Bible simply says that it was sent out into the desert, and so the Christian model would break down there at that point because there's no blood, there's no suffering, there's no death. And uh, so the best analog really doesn't work. And then the other problem really is that, you know, the Christians have already um, uh, told us that Jesus was another animal sacrifice. They've already said, I think it's John, uh, the Gospel of John says oh, the that, lamb that, well, right. that comes to take away the, the sin of the world in reference to the, the, the Pesach lamb. But, of course, the Pesach lamb is not a sin sacrifice. Right. But you really can't be both the Passover lamb and the, and the Yom Kippur offering at the same time. Um, so it gets a little bit messy, meaning that the the symbolism has to basically break down, and uh, you know, at some point, you really have to accept a very very far fetched spin, uh, and quite a big spin, uh, and it's really it loses wow. its integrity, meaning that in, in terms of having any integrity in, in, in connection to the text, it doesn't really connect to the text, meaning it all you would have is this uh, claim that somehow Jesus ties into the biblical sacrifices, but it gets very, very messy. Number 32 is Leviticus 16.27. Let's be quick on this one, but it says because the, 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 there's suffering outside the camp. Now, this is silly, and it, and it, it quotes um, Matthew 27.33, Hebrews 13.11.12, which, which merely points to, uh, I think, that Jesus was crucified outside the walls of, of the city of Jerusalem. Suffering outside the camp, there's no such thing. What we have here in, uh, in Leviticus 16.27, the bull for the sin offering 
and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and uh, and they shall be burned uh, in the fire, their skins, their flesh, and the offal. Now, if we were to read that just by looking at uh, number 32 on this list, it would suggest that you take the, the, the goat and, and the bull and you burn them alive so that they suffer outside the camp. Right. But- <laughs> That's not what happens. Right. They they were already dead. They're um, dead. Yeah, so it's hard to see that the 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 blood itself suffers or the 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 dead body suffers. No, no, no. Um, this is silly. I'm moving on from that one. Let's not waste time there. <laughs> Number 33. Now surely there's something in this. Come on. This is the this is pretty famous this one Leviticus. How do you get I mean, come on. You know, when the Christian reads you this, done and dusted, it's over. There's there's no coming back. Leviticus number 17:11, the blood is the life of the flesh. Now, um this is what it says in the verse, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you for, uh, upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. There it is. Here, it's just simply making the statement, I think, on this list that the, the life of the flesh is in the blood, meaning that the life force of an animal uh, and human beings as well is, is really in the blood, which is true. I mean, that, that's a true statement, that the, if you wanted to find the life force uh, of the animal, it's going to be in the blood. It's not going to be in uh, its hair. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a true statement. But again, the problem is it has nothing to, nothing to do with what we're trying to accomplish, meaning that the, the statement in Leviticus 17 that the life force of an animal is in its blood is not a statement about who the Messiah is, that there will be a Messiah, meaning that it seems to really be totally disconnected from what we're really uh, focusing on, meaning that it's got no connection to the topic of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, who the Messiah will be. This is not a prophetic prediction to state that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So really, um, unfortunately, uh, it has literally nothing to do with what... Uh, the claim is that it's accomplishing. I mean, that it's not a prophetic um, prediction that was fulfilled by Jesus. Now, the the more important theological list listing here is the next one, where they make the claim, I think it's this next one, mm-hmm. that uh, it's blood that makes atonement. Yeah, so this is actually a very, very important concept in Christianity, that, um, you know, their insistence that the only way for a person to be uh, forgiven for their sins, to achieve atonement, is through a blood sacrifice. Um, So that is a true statement in Christianity. Actually, it's in the book of Hebrews, I think, chapter 9, verse 22, Hmm. where it says that... Isn't it interesting, before you do read that, though, isn't it interesting they haven't referenced that here uh, in Leviticus uh, uh, 1711, because because (laughs) Hebrews does reference this particular verse, it does quote, and it goes further, and it goes on to say in, in the verse that you're about to quote, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, which is an absolute statement, but that's false, right? Well, it, it's f- within the context of the Christian Bible, it's not false, meaning that that is a principle of Christianity, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The problem is that many Christians assume that that is what's being said in Leviticus 17.11. I mean, I've had many Christians tell me that, you know, uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And I say, where does it say that in the Bible? And they'll say Leviticus 17.11. I say, no, it doesn't say that in Leviticus. Leviticus simply says that blood is an atonement. 
Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't say that blood is the only thing that brings atonement, which is what the Christians would have liked to have said. Um, but the statement that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness is only in the Christian Bible. Leviticus 17 is simply saying that when you bring an animal sacrifice, so the part of the animal that affects atonement is its blood. That's all it's saying. It's not saying that the only thing that can achieve atonement is blood. Um, my friend Rabbi Blumenthal gives the following analogy. He mm -hmm. says that you imagine a kid comes home from school and his mother has prepared some dinner, and, and this is not the ideal dinner to give your kid, um, but by, it's just an example. So on mm -hmm. the plate, there's some broccoli, there's some macaroni, and there's some uh, jello for dessert. Okay. Don't quote social services here. <laughs> <laughs> but the mother says to, to her son, Johnny, look, Johnny, be very careful to eat the broccoli because it's the broccoli that provides the nutrition. Now, she's not saying that the only thing in the world that's nutritious is broccoli. Mm -hmm. She's saying is that on this plate, the food that's nutritious is the broccoli. Right. So in the same way, when it says in this passage that it's the blood that makes atonement, it's not saying that the only thing in the world that makes atonement is blood. It's saying when you bring a sacrifice, the part of the animal that's critical to achieve the atonement is its blood, not another part of the animal's body. The and that is very much the context of, uh, of Leviticus chapter 17. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the important thing to understand is that it doesn't say in this verse that blood is the only uh, mm. means to atonement. And what's interesting is that the entire context of Leviticus 17 is not about how to achieve atonement. I mean, that you would assume that, you know, if this was the key verse in the Bible teaching us how to get forgiven for our sins, it would be found in a passage which is discussing the concept of atonement from sin. Mm. But if you read Leviticus 17, this passage is not really discussing how we achieve atonement for our sins. This is a passage which is teaching people the prohibition against consuming blood. And right. what the passage says is that you're not allowed to consume blood, to, to, to drink the blood, mm. um, because blood was only given for one purpose, this verse says. It was only mm. given for the purpose of using on the altar to atone for our sins because it contains the life force of the animal. And there it is. it's the part of the animal as opposed to, let's say, its skin or its uh, cartilage or its hair or its um, you know, nose mm. or its ears. It's the blood of the animal that makes atonement. It, it, what it's not saying to us is that what the Christian asserts. It's not saying that there are no other ways of achieving forgiveness. As a matter of fact, the, the, the truth is that animal blood sacrifices in and of themselves did not grant atonement anyway. The Bible says that the sacrifice of a wicked person is an abomination to the Lord. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was never a, a possibility that a person could simply bring an animal sacrifice and sprinkle the blood and they're automatically forgiven. The, the key component of being forgiven for your sins biblically is to go through the process of atonement, which means that a person has to recognize their sin, they have to confess mm -hmm. their sin to God. They, they, have have a con to, they have a contrite heart. and they Exactly. And and their repentance. That's the um, only path to forgiveness. You see that, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 33, which right. speaks about repentance as the, as the real uh, component, the real path yes. to, to forgiveness. 
this is really there's a lot here, um, but it says specifically here that God didn't just give blood as a means to atonement. It was blood on the altar, meaning that there wasn't mm-hmm. any other place that blood can serve as uh, a means to atonement. It had to be applied on the altar of the temple itself, not on any other place. And we know that the blood of Jesus was not applied to the altar of the temple. No, no, of course not. Uh, And just as a a final example, uh, which uh, has to be combined with this discussion, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 11, but uh, it says, If he is not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he whose sin shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. It goes on to say, it is a sin offering. The priest shall take atonement for him for his sin that he has committed in any of these matters, and it shall be forgiven him. It shall be forgiven him. The rest shall be the priest as a grain offering. And there's a, a, an excellent example of a uh, an offering that does uh, that, that, that obtains atonement, uh, forgiveness, that doesn't include blood. Exactly. Moving on, this is uh, number 35 of the list, uh, Leviticus, this is the last one in Leviticus, Leviticus 23, this is the, uh, uh, the summation of the feasts and holy days of Israel, uh, Leviticus 23 verses 36 and 37, it says the drink offering, now this is just on the, on the heels of uh, Yom Teruah, and it, and it surmises by saying, you know, this is, in fact I'll read it here, hang on, here it is, 23, verse Uh, I'm going to read verse 37. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you have proclaimed to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, uh, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and a drink offering, everything on its day. Now, it mentions a drink offering. Uh, This is what it highlights on this list. And then it goes to uh, uh, where Jesus says, if any man thirsts. They've got the wrong wrong reference there on this list, but uh, it is, in fact... John chapter 7, verse 37, uh, Jesus says, uh, stood up and, and said in, in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. That's in John chapter 7, which comes on the heels, of course, of John chapter 6, and nearing the end of John chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. This is when Jesus was in uh, the synagogue at Capernaum, and Jesus said, <laughs> stands up in a loud voice and says to everyone, Truly, I tell you, unless you eat my flesh, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink, and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. My goodness, considering that we were just talking about Leviticus chapter 17, how foreign and bizarre are those statements? <sighs> okay. Um, <laughs> Where to begin? Yeah, I, I think, look, the simplest place to begin is that, you know, uh, any just simple, straightforward reading of Leviticus 23 um, would leave someone scratching their head wondering, where does it speak here about the Messiah? Um, where does it say this is somehow connected to a prediction of knowing anything about the Messiah? I mean, this is, again, this is something which is totally out of context. There's nothing in the passage in Leviticus about a prediction uh, about how we can somehow identify the Messiah. And, uh, you know... We better move on from there. I I think think people can have a quick look at that and and move on to Numbers chapter... We're in Numbers! Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. Now, this is reiterating something we've already gone through. 
uh, in the previous session, not a bone of him will be broken. And uh, that's, of course, referencing, is it, it's John 19, 31 to 36, uh, where it says that, uh, you know, these things were done so that the scriptures may be fulfilled, uh, that none of, none, of, none of the bones would be broken. We've spoken about that. Shall we move on? Uh, yeah, we did this when we discussed the Passover offering. It's just that it's interesting that in this particular verse in Numbers, it specifically says that it should be done like all of the decrees of the Passover offering shall they make this offering. Meaning that there were many laws about the Passover offering, not just that you shouldn't break any of its bones. Um, you couldn't leave any of it over until the morning. Uh, and I think I mentioned previously that for a male, you had to have been circumcised to partake in this um, mm-hmm. pr- in this particular ceremony. And mm. uh, I don't think the New Testament necessarily ever advocates that men necessarily have to be circumcised at all. Mm. So it becomes a very selective fulfillment of this passage. And of course, again, uh, we know that it's describing not the Messiah, but the Passover offering. There it is. Numbers chapter 21, verse 9. Now, surely there's something in this, Rabbi, because uh, the serpent on a pole. Now, this is a, this is a fascinating story in and of itself because we have, of course, the second commandment. Uh, and yet here is a, is a situation in the wilderness where they have a problem that there's a plague of snakes. And, uh, and, and Moses pleads with God, what do, what do we do about this? God tells him, well, you make a, a bronze uh, serpent on a pole, put it up where everyone can see it. And when they look, they will be, uh, they'll be saved. And uh, this, again, referencing uh, uh, John 3, uh, 14 to 16, uh, it says, uh, starting from 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Look and live, is what it's saying. What do you make of it? It's interesting that, that it doesn't really speak about you know seeing this serpent and being saved from your sins. Um, it, it was uh, a mechanism where people could be healed from having been bitten by the snake. Uh, it's also, we know that that's the symbol of the medical profession now, is this yeah, pole right. with the snake on it, um, with the serpent. But again, this is not a prophecy it's a, it's a narrative part of the Bible. It's not about the Messiah. Um, and again, even again, if, it's, it's it's not God saying to Moses, "Look, we, I'm going to do this properly one day. I just don't have the time right now. So just make a bronze snake and put it over there, and we'll we'll make do with that until such time." But but the interesting, considering the second commandment uh, involving idolatry, this is not a, a, a snake on a pole. It's not a a an idol that is to be worshipped. What is it then? What exactly is it? Well, it's interesting. The, the Talmud speaks about this as uh, a way of directing their gaze, not to the snake so much, but a way of getting people to look up. And they really were supposed to look up towards God. And we know that God is the ultimate healer. And so mm-hmm. what's interesting is the Talmud tells us that this was destroyed because people began to attribute powers to the snake itself, mm-hmm. to the staff itself. And really, uh, we know that nothing happens without God really causing it to happen. So, mm. um, now, that's an not- interesting thing. Can I just, you, you just breezed over that. I have to go, I have to go back. Uh, in, in John chapter 3, Jesus is likening himself to the snake on the pole, and yet it was only a, a matter of uh, centuries before the snake on the pole was used as an item of worship. And as a result, was it Hezekiah who, uh, who commanded it to be smashed yes. into pieces? 
And uh, so, I mean, can we not make connections there? I mean, Jesus was, uh, is certainly in, in churches all around the world, is worshipped. Uh, like the snake on the pole was centuries later, he's worshipped as the, uh, the, 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 the son of God on the cross. Does that mean that we're waiting for Hezekiah to come and, should I say it? I mean, <laughs> well, well, I mean, come on, do we, can, can we not take it all the way? They're, they're the one that's putting it on the list, and it certainly well, makes the connection in John chapter 3. It's also strange, because the very first thing on the list we had was the idea that the snake represents Satan. Um, so, oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's Christian theology as well. It's, it's very confusing. All right, yeah, so that's, who does that's the serpent really represent? There we go. Number 38, Numbers 24, ah, verse 8. Finally. Ah, finally. Now we've got this. Okay. So the flight to, to Egypt. And what it's quoting is, oh, I love this. This is, this is really funny. I, I had to chuckle when I saw this because the reference for this one is Matthew 2, 14. Not Matthew 2, 14 and 15. No, 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 no. Let's not do that. Just 14. What it says in 14 is... So he, and I think that's Joseph in that he, so he got up, took the child, that's Jesus, and his mother Mary, during the night and left for Egypt. Now, don't read anymore. That's, that's all we, but if you do read more, it says in verse 15, he stayed there until Herod, uh, until the death of Herod, uh, and so it was fulfilled. Now, if something's fulfilled, don't you think he'd include that verse as well? It's, it's a bit, I don't know why they stop at 14 on this list, but you really should read 15 as well. It says, uh, he stayed there until the death of Herod, and so it was fulfilled uh, what the Lord had said through the prophet, quote, out of Egypt I called my son. There it is. Jesus went to Egypt, then he came out, and therefore the, prophet, uh, the, the prophecy is fulfilled. It's Hosea, it's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, right? Oh, that one, yeah. The, 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 but uh, again, nothing there about the Messiah. Uh, no, I know that's a problem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because well, it we, says it says when when Israel was a child, not when Jesus was a child, not when Yeshua was. When, when, doesn't say when Messiah was a child. It says when Israel was a child. I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And of course, that's in reference to uh, Exodus chapter four, verse twenty-two, right? Right. Um, that becomes a bit of a quagmire. Um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, Numbers 24.8, I'm trying to find it in my Bible now. Uh, Numbers 24.8 says, God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations and his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. What a great verse. Yeah, so it's it's really almost impossible to read this and say that uh, it's predicting anything about the Messiah. Um, and again, if a person wanted to make that assertion, you'd have to wonder, well, why assume that it's referring to Jesus, though? Because certainly Jesus did not accomplish those things. He didn't devour the nations who were his adversaries. Well, that's, that's a good point. That's in fact, a good point. He, was, he was basically um, done away. He was done in by the, his adversaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is uh, it, it suffers from the same uh, formula that we've had that it's really a passage where it's difficult to say it's referring to the Messiah. I mean, a person could make the argument, um, but there's nothing that really connects it to Jesus here. It, it's it it really is a dead giveaway though when the uh, when verse fifteen says that it's fulfilled by the prophet saying out of Egypt I called my son clearly a reference to Hosea chapter eleven 
verse 1, and clearly Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 says, Israel, when Israel was a child. Interesting, because when Matthew cites that passage in Hosea, um, it, it, he conveniently leaves out the beginning of that verse. Mm, um, very convenient. sort of edits out the, the, the reference to the fact when Israel was a child. Mm. Um, and he just cites the end of it, um, you know, about uh, his son coming out of Egypt. Most unfortunate. All right. Well, we better move on from that one. Number 39 on the list, Numbers 24, verse 17. Uh, now, actually, you know what? It, and, and, and number 40, 39 and 40 on the list is in regards to, uh, uh, this is uh, Balaam giving one of his oracles. Uh, within that, he says, I, I see him, but not now, he says in verse 17. And there's a reference there on this list of 365 messianic prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. There's a reference to Galatians 4, 4. And in Galatians 4, 4, it says, but when the, uh, the, the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And I guess what it's saying is that, you know, when, when the time was right, uh, Jesus appeared. And that connecting that with uh, Balaam saying, uh, I see him, but not now. That's, that's pretty I, lame. I don't think, lame I don't, it's pretty lame. It's vague. It's way too vague. I don't think we have to explain that much more but something a little bit more interesting is uh is at verse 19 i think uh, a star out of jacob now what they're, they're they're referencing here uh is just uh, the genealogies though they are different they both claim of course to be just that jesus is a descendant of jacob uh and revelation chapter 22 verse 16 which refers to jesus as the morning star um star out of jacob what do you make of it so this actually, um, I wouldn't say this is one of the clearest messianic prophecies in the Bible, but in Jewish tradition, this passage is taken as a messianic prophecy. Um, where the Bible, I'll just read from the text that I have, that I, I will look at him, but it's not uh, near. Um, a star, I'm sorry, it begins, I shall see him, but not now. I'll look at him, but it's not near, which is a pretty, uh, it's not clear what that means. But then it goes hmm. on to say, a star has issued forth from Jacob, and a scepter-bearer has risen from Israel. Mm. Now, scepter-bearer seems to be referring to some kind of a ruler, and that's why yes. we would not be uncomfortable saying, yes, this might be a messianic prophecy. Um, and he will pierce the nobles of Moab and undermine the children of Shace, of Shate. Um, mm -hmm. Shade really is the progenitor of all humankind. He was the son of Adam and Eve that survived. And so it seems to be speaking here about some important person who will be a ruler, and he's going to somehow overcome almost the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, it, if you compare this to the passages I, I mentioned before that are really clear messianic prophecies, this doesn't really rise to that level, but... It, it's a little bit clearer. Can we say it's a little clearer than uh, uh, until Shiloh comes? Well, there, I, I would say that both of those passages are almost the same, meaning that uh, until Shiloh comes, Shiloh comes, which was, I think, uh, Genesis 49, that's the other passage in, in the five books of Moses that's taken to be a messianic prophecy. This would be the second one. Mm -hmm. and so while, to me, it's not the clearest uh, prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, we would agree with the, uh, the Christian interpretation here is that it is a reference about the Messiah. So 
I'm not going to argue on that point. That I'm willing to agree, yes, this passage is referring to the coming of the Messiah. I would say that it's not the clearest reference. But then the $64,000 question is, is it referring to Jesus? Um, you know, this, there, there, were, there were many Jews not long after that thought, thought that it was referring to Simon Bar-Chokba, right? <laughs> exactly. Meaning that, it, look, if this is uh, referring to the Messiah, then it would be speaking about any person you thought the Messiah was. Mm-hmm. And uh, the important piece here, I mean, it's sort of very obvious, is that it's speaking about the Messiah who will overcome the enemies of Israel. And, uh, you know, that's something obviously that Jesus did not accomplish. Jesus fell. Jesus was, was essentially uh, killed by the, the major enemy of Israel in almost all of mm-hmm. Jewish history. So, again, this would be a passage where we could shake hands with our Christian brothers and say, yes, this chapter 24 of, of uh, Numbers is uh, alluding to speaking about the coming of the Messiah but it's not speaking about Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the Jewish commentaries say it's really referring to King David, um, who was really the first to vanquish the enemies of Israel. Um, but I think that more traditionally, it's understood to be a reference ultimately to that descendant of David who will be the Messiah, who will ultimately um, vanquish the enemies of Israel. Um, Brilliant. But Maybe again, today. Uh, you know, hasn't yet happened. Mm, unfortunately so but maybe soon Deuteronomy are we in we're in Deuteronomy how about that Devarim so now this the next four uh, all uh, are included in the same passage and that is Deuteronomy 18 often referred to uh, by Christians as the prophet greater than Moses yeah this this is again an example I think of double dipping meaning that when you're trying to construct this list of 365 prophecies here they're they're uh, squeezing four out of the same verse. Really, mm. it's interesting that the, the passage itself doesn't speak about someone greater than Moses. It speaks about someone like Moses. Well, it, it, it will really if you go to the the, the end of the book of uh, of Deuteronomy, it 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 does say uh, right at the end. If I go there now, and this is a, it's an interesting thing. If I, if I look at the study notes in my New King James Study Bible here, Michael, it says uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, study notes says, All true prophets among the Hebrew people were raised up by the Lord. Uh, none could become a, a true prophet by self-will or desire. It doesn't say anything about a prophet greater than Moses. But when I go to the end of the book uh, and I read, let's see, ah, verse 10 of uh, chapter 34, it says, But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And if I go down to that study note of my New King James Study Bible uh, of Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, it says, a prophet like Moses, as important as Joshua was, he should not be confused with the one, capital O, who would fulfill God's promise of a prophet who would have an even greater status than Moses, and then it references Deuteronomy 18, 15. Yeah, I find that puzzling because um, Deuteronomy 18 speaks about a prophet like Moses, um, but you mentioned at the end of the Deuteronomy, it says that there, there never will be a prophet, never has been a prophet as great as Moses. He seems to mm. be the, the, described specifically as the greatest of prophets. Mm. Um, I think it's important because this passage comes up frequently to really get a um, a, a sense of the real 
meta context here of Deuteronomy, not just this chapter. We'll see that in a minute that there is a, a specific context to the chapter itself, but of the book in general. It's interesting to understand that Deuteronomy really is the farewell speech that Moses gave to the Jewish people um, before they enter into the land of Israel and prior to his death. And th- th- there is a subtext here. There is a, a context to the book. And that's the following. Back in the book of Exodus, um, when uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai, you know, the, the Jewish people had put a tremendous uh, f- amount of their focus and faith in Moses as their leader. And we know that when he didn't return from Mount Sinai, when they were expecting him, they basically freaked out. They panicked. And they couldn't imagine uh, living and really surviving without Moses. And so what they do in their panic is that they build a golden calf. Mm -hmm. So we see from the book of Exodus, and this was a very sensitive issue, that this is a problem. What is going to happen when Moses is no longer around? And that's one of the subtexts of the book of Deuteronomy, that he's preparing the people for the fact that he's not going to go into the land with them. I mean, Moses is told that you're going to die without seeing the land. And so this is a problem. What is going to happen now that Moses won't be there? And if you look at the verses immediately preceding verse 15 here in chapter 18, um, it speaks about not following the occult spiritual practices of the nation that nations that you're going to encounter when you go into the land of Israel. And it speaks about things like divination and occult practices and mm. uh, different kinds of sorcery. That the, the, there, were, there were practices used by these people to determine how to act, what to do, what will guide us. Mm-hmm. And so what God is saying here in this chapter is when Moses is no longer going to be leading you, don't follow. If you want to know what you should be doing, how you should live when you have questions, don't do what the nations of the lands that you'll be coming into are doing. Don't practice sorcery and witchcraft and divination, etc. Rather, God says, I am going to raise a prophet up for you, and mm-hmm. you will follow him. So it's very clear from the context of the entire book of Deuteronomy in general and chapter 18 in particular that this is referring to Joshua, that they're being told that when Moses is no longer going to be leader for them, there will be another prophet, and that prophet will be Joshua. And by extension, it does refer to all future prophets. So that's, Hmm. I think, one thing that is important to understand, that it's certainly not referring to someone who's going to come over a thousand years later. It's specifically referring here to Joshua. The second thing that's very, very critical is that there is this idea that there's an office in the Bible, the office of the prophet. And the Bible speaks about the true prophets of God. And yet Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, also speaks about false prophets. Mm. And the question is, how do we know whether someone is a true prophet or a false prophet? So that's um, Deuteronomy 13, right, isn't it? I think it comes up a few places. Uh-huh. and so, so it says that... Uh uh, punishment for apostates is the heading that I've got here. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, 
which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage. So that's hmm. very important that we see that um, for that true prophets we have to listen to. False prophets, it's a capital crime. They're to be executed. Hmm. The question hmm. is, who makes those determinations? I mean that... Uh, you know, God is giving us uh, a, a book of law here, a book of instructions. And the question is, how are these laws implemented? Um, who is it that makes a determination of whether someone is a true prophet or not? Now, it's clear that a person does not become a true prophet because they claim to be a prophet. Every prophet, whether they're true or false, claims to be a true prophet. Mm-hmm. And what we know is that the procedure for determining a false prophet was not let, left up to every individual, meaning that you couldn't on your own uh, determine that you know, this person walking down the street is a false prophet and then chop their head off. I mean, that the Bible itself tells us in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, that any time there's a question, any time there's a, a question or an issue, uh, specifically and when it comes to capital crimes, it has to be determined by the leading sages of each generation. Mm-hmm. That this kind of a uh, decision was not left up to an ad hoc committee. It's not left up to individuals. It's specifically given and trusted into the hands of the leading Jewish sages. Um, and that's repeated several times in the Bible. And uh, that's exactly how we know. For example, how do we know I often ask this to Christians, how do you know that Isaiah was a true prophet? How do you know that, that Jeremiah was a true prophet? Maybe they were false prophets. Mm. And uh, how was that determination made? Now, the biblical answer is that it was the leading Jewish sages during the generation of Jeremiah that determined he was a true prophet. By the way, not just determined he was a true prophet, but they had to determine to put his uh, writings into the Bible to canonize them. You know, the Talmud tells us there were over a million prophets that we had, 1,200,000 prophets. Not every mm-hmm. one of them has a book in the Bible, otherwise you get a hernia every time you picked up your Bible. <laughs> so, who makes that decision? Again, it's not the prophet. The prophet just can't kick and scream and say, look, I want my book in the Bible. <laughs> so, the what God tells us, again, it's important to understand this is not a a right or a privilege that was arrogated by these uh, individuals. Mm. It was God in the Bible that says, when there are questions like this, you have to turn to the leading sages of your generation. They will make the determination. Now, obviously, God knows that human beings are fallible, and God knows that they're not perfect. Um, And even so, God says that we're to listen to them. God could have very well said to us, Look, boys and girls, anytime there's a question, especially about some sensitive issue as to whether someone's a prophet, you know, you're going to need some clear guidance. Just pray unto me, and I'll reveal to you whether someone's a true prophet. I mean, God could have 
set that up as the procedure. God could have said, look, uh, I, can, I spoke to you at Mount Sinai. I'm perfectly capable of speaking to you throughout history. And, uh, you know, any problems come up, you know, I'll just come down again and I'll let you know what to do. God didn't say that. We read in the Bible that God says to us that the, the procedure, the methodology for determining things like whether someone's a true prophet or not, that is given by a God into the hands of the leading Jewish sages. And so the way we know that Jeremiah and Isaiah were true prophets was not because they insisted that they were true prophets or that they perform miracles, because we know, you just read Deuteronomy 13, false prophets can do miracles. Mm-hmm. But they had to be accepted by prophet, by the, as prophets by the leading Jewish sages of their generation. And these are people that also determined to include their writings, their, their prophecies into the canon of the Bible. But I bring this up simply because this was the mechanism that God instituted. And it's important to remember that that's exactly why we don't accept Jesus as a true prophet, because he was not accepted by the leading sages of his generation as a true prophet. Mm -hmm. And that's why we don't have Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Galatians and Corinthians in our Bible, because Mm -hmm. these writings were not accepted as true prophecy by the leading Jewish sages. And so this idea of a true prophet is something that we have to always remember is determined. It was, it was put into the hands of the leading sages of each generation to determine who is a true prophet, who is not a true prophet. Now, the next, the next two are from the same passage, number 45 and number 46 on the list of 365 messianic prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Uh, the first one, Deuteronomy 21, 13 to 23 is what it's citing. It says, as a prophet, it gives some uh, uh, references there. I honestly do not know what it's talking about, and I suggest we move on to the next one. What do, you, do, you, do you have any idea what this one's talking about, or can we keep going? I, I, don't, I don't even know where it's coming from. I don't have it in front I, of me. But, uh, I, think it's, I think it's a mistake. I'm going to call this a mistake because I just don't see any connection. I'll leave it on the, uh, on the list for listeners to uh, look up themselves and see if they can make any sense of it. But Deuteronomy chapter 21 in the latter verses, and I'm going to start from 22, it says, uh, verse 22, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And of course, it cites Galatians 3, uh, verse uh, 10 to 13, which does say, okay, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, for as many are of the works of the law under a curse, for it is written, this is Paul saying, uh, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy, ooh, I think it's 27 or 20, 27, last verse of 27. Uh, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Uh, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet uh, the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What do you make of it? So, I think really this is a mistranslation. Um, at least the, the Christian understanding here is based upon a mistranslation. Um, 
for our purposes, it's important to, again, just for the record, observe that nothing in this chapter of Deuteronomy is telling us about the Messiah. It's not a messianic prophecy. It's not mm-hmm. a prophecy. It's telling us that when someone was executed for a capital crime, um, they were placed upon a tree. They were displayed. But their body had to be taken down because if they were left hanging uh, on a tree, but it, it doesn't say in the verse that the person is cursed if that person is hanging on a tree. Meaning, I think you said cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Oh, at the end it says, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. That's yeah, accursed, uh, the end of that, verse 23. Right, so it's saying that, that he who is hanged, the one who is hanged, is accursed, meaning that they're being cursed by God. But the sense of the Hebrew is not that the person who's hanging is cursed by God. But because that, they're hanging, but because, as we see in the previous verses, that they've done something worthy of death. And it says in verse 21, that all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Right, that's why the person has to be executed. But the idea that, that the person who remains hanging on the tree without being taken down, the, the sense of the Hebrew is not that the person who's on the tree is, is being cursed by God, but the Hebrew is saying really that a hanging person is a curse of God, meaning that God himself is being disrespected when a person who is created in his image is hanging up on a tree like that. I mean, mm-hmm. that it's a disgrace not to the person. That What the verse is saying is that God himself is being cursed because since the human being is created in the image of God, any kind of desecration of that human being is by extension a disgrace uh, to God. God himself is being besmirched. And so the, the passage is not really speaking about a person himself that's being cursed. By hanging on so can I, can, I, can I clarify that? Because what you're saying is that uh, because this person has done something worthy of death, uh, is that not then a curse resulting from uh, disobedience of the Torah? Well, they're being punished, meaning that mm-hmm. what the passage is saying is that uh, a person who commits a, a capital crime, and by the way, it's important just to, for, to state that it was very, very rare that in Jewish history capital sentences were carried out. The Talmud says that if they executed one person in 70 years, it was a bloody court. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it, you could read the Bible and think that every Monday and Thursday they were killing people. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not what happened. I mean, I think no. that the, 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 the scripture, um, you know, is telling us for effect, um, you know, it's trying to sort of emphasize how heinous certain crimes is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. tells us that you're really worthy of dying. Um, you're worthy of being killed. It's interesting, for example, you know, the famous passage in Exodus which says, an eye for an eye. Um, we know that according to Jewish law, we didn't take out people's eyes if they blinded someone. We mm. didn't chop off people's hands. The, you know, the oral law says that the penalty for taking out someone's eye was to compensate them with five different kinds of financial compensation. So the question, which is a legitimate question, is, well, if God's intention is that you make financial compensation for wounding someone physically, why does it say an eye for an eye? And Mm so one of the reasons it's given, it's offered, is that the Bible is trying to make a point. 
you know, when you take out someone's eye, that's a horrible thing to do. And what the Bible is saying is that if you do something as grotesque and as cruel and as sick as that, on some cosmic level, you deserve to have your eye taken out as well. That's what you deserve on some cosmic level. However, in reality, it's cruel to do that to someone, even in punishment. And it's not, not really a victim. And the truth is that it's usually not going to be fair and just anyway, because not everyone is the same. For example, uh, the Talmud speaks about, for example, imagine that the attacker was a, uh, a pianist, and he chopped off the hand of an opera singer. So the opera singer can go on with his life singing without his hand, but if you chop off the hand of the pianist, he will be out of work for the rest of his life. Mm. Um, or let's say the, the person who attacked someone and t- took out their eye, that person only had one eye to begin with. So the person who was so attacked... So you, you blind the person? Right. Well, exactly. Meaning the person who was attacked will have, have one eye and they can see. You can get by with one eye. The attacker, who only had one eye to begin with, you take out his one remaining eye, and he's totally blind. So the, the idea of retaliating by tit-for-tat, by chopping off a hand or taking out someone's eye, it's cruel, it's not going to help the victim, and it's often not going to be fair anyway. So, in so, pra- so, so what you're saying is Israel did not practice this in a literal sense. This, no. is, a, this is an expression which is figurative. It's meant to uh, It's not an expression something. that's meant – it's meant to convey something. It's, it's, a, it's convey. A, a figurative expression, and it's basically saying you will make good. Well, what it's really saying is – no, an eye for an eye is saying you did something so horrible. If you want to know how horrible it is – you should have your eye taken out. It's, it's mm. trying to convey the seriousness and the, the evil mm. of what you've done. But mm-hmm. to take out your eye in response is just cruel and it's, in, it's ineffective. It's not going to help the victim. So in practice, we uh, require the person pays five different kinds of financial compensation. They compensate for the loss of the limb. They compensate for the loss of wages. They compensate for pain and for embarrassment. There's a whole And it's, it's fair compensation is, is, is the point. Totally right? fair. So the totally same way, when the Bible says, for example, that if you violate the Sabbath, you'll be put to death. And if you do this, you'll be put to death. And if you do this, you'll be put to death. If, so it sounds like when you read the Bible, they're going to have hangings every five minutes. But right. the, the, the way the legal system was set up was in a way where it was virtually impossible to carry out the death penalty, meaning that there were, for example, there were rules of evidence in the Bible. You just couldn't uh, carry out the death penalty because you thought the person was guilty. There has to be proof, and mm. there had to be two witnesses. But the question is, what was the procedure for examining witnesses? And the law... Uh, provided for such a detailed and rigorous cross-examination of the witnesses in comparison to each other that it's clear that the system of law was almost set up to make it practically impossible to achieve a conviction in a capital crime. So mm. the, 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 the reality was they almost never put people to death. So the question is, so if there's no intention really to be killing everybody every day. So why does the Bible keep on saying that if you do this, you're going to die? So I think the reason is the Bible is trying to tell us that if you do certain things, those crimes are so horrible that on some cosmic level, you deserve to die. Mm-hmm. But we, that's not a way to run a society. It's not going to help too many people. 
So in practice, practically speaking, we don't take out eyes, we don't chop off hands, and usually we don't execute people. There are other ways of, of, of punishing people and of helping to rehabilitate them. So um, the Bible here is not saying that the person who remains hanging on the tree, he is, this therefore shows that he is accursed of God. No. Mm-hmm. The person is punished by God for what they've done. And, and here the person must have done something very bad if they're going to get punished by the court to the extent that they're going to be murdered. Killed by mm. the court, not murdered. Uh, it's not mm. murder when you execute someone according to the court. And then mm. they were put on a tree to display them, to let everyone see that this is what happens to some people. But they had to be taken down almost immediately because what the Bible is saying is to have someone's body, their carcass, I don't know if you use the word carcass for human beings. To have someone's dead body hanging up on a tree like that is just disrespectful. And if you disrespect a human being that is created in the image of God, it's it's disrespectful to God Mm. himself. And so it's not that the person is cursed. It's God himself that's being cursed when his creatures are made in his image are, are disrespected in that way and as it says also uh, it defiles the land obviously as well so uh, to take them down uh, and not leave them there overnight and while and that that concludes uh, Deuteronomy and I have to say while I remain disappointed I don't think there's anything there that we really got to sink our teeth into as far as messianic prophecies are concerned that could really concretely be pinned to Jesus we certainly are investigating very fascinating passages in the Torah, and as we continue on next time uh, into the uh, remainder of the Tanakh, and I do believe we're going to get from 47 maybe through to 58, which uh, extends from uh, some references in Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and Job. Be looking forward to that. It sounds great. Sounds like a plan. All right, my friend, <laughs> Rabbi Michael Skovac of JewsForJudaism.ca is the website. JewsForJudaism.ca, Jews for Judaism Canada. Thank you so much for coming back and uh, investigating the supposed 365 prophecies of Jesus in the Tanakh. It's always my, fun. and My great pleasure, Jono. Until next time, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.